We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 55. Even just going back to 2016, she helped the U.S. bring home Team Bronze Medal at Rio at the Olympics. Then in 2017, she was second place in the World Cup Final Grand Prix. And then in 2018, she was world number one ranking with a record-breaking freestyle, plus Team Silver overall at the World Equestrian Games at Tryon. What is even more impressive than becoming the first American dressage rider to be ranked number one in FEI world rankings is her story of how she got to where she is today. So let's hear it from our guest, Laura Graves. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm happy to. Awesome. Well, I feel like we have a lot to talk about, but I would love to hear your story starting from the beginning, um, how you started you know, in this equestrian world. Yeah, it feels like so long ago. <laughs> I'm from Vermont. Um, obviously, I live in Florida now. I'm the middle of three sisters, and my mom grew up with Morgan horses. So I think when we were little, we kind of had this opportunity where my dad worked at a hardware store and we ended up, it's like a very strange business deal where my parents traded our washer and dryer for these two ponies. (laughs) And uh, my dad just kind of thought like, oh, I have three daughters and my wife rides and this will be just like a nice thing we can all do together. We had some property. My parents built a barn themselves and um, all the horses just kind of lived together, all the horses. So it started out as these two ponies and then quickly other ones just kind of started showing up Mm -hmm. and it was a little bit like the horses that needed a home they would come to our house so we had a Percheron mare we had off the track thoroughbreds we had um the first two ponies were Appaloosa um a Welsh Cobb cross we had I think a quarter horse I don't think that's really what my dad intended when he swapped the washer dryer for these ponies, but that's what happened. Yeah, it was something that all of us girls did do together for a while. And my sisters ended up eventually kind of picking up other sports, which as any horse kid knows, there comes a point in your life where you do have to make that choice just because of time Mm -hmm. commitment. They went on for a lot of different varsity sports and I just stuck with the horses. And it wasn't until I was probably... I don't know, 10, something like that, where I decided I wanted to ride. Before that, we were very small and um, we didn't have to ride. It was, we'd hop on a bareback when we wanted to, but it wasn't training. There weren't lessons going on. Right. Uh, I couldn't tell you that we had, you know, proper saddles or bridles or anything like that. It was just more of a pet situation mm-hmm. um, until I got a little bit older. Yeah, that was the beginning of it all. And Once I started riding, it became kind of clear to me anyway, that this was something I wanted to do on a much bigger level. And I think I was in sixth grade when I, I mean, how old are you in sixth grade? Young, young. (laughs) I don't don't even know. A little. (laughs) A long time ago. Yeah. And uh, 
Yeah. But at that time I knew I wanted to, I said, okay, I'm going to ride for the U S Olympic team. Mm -hmm. And it was just that simple. And so I think from a very young age, I had really high hopes for what I could do in the sport. Of course, being from a really, you know, hardworking family, I don't think we had any idea what uh, this journey was going to, to entail, but that was the beginning of it. And of course, a lot of other things happened from that point where I got my, my top horse, uh, my Olympic horse as a, a foal, um, a number of years after that and ended up moving to Florida to work for another trainer. And I've been here ever since. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, so as you were growing up deciding, you know, okay, I'm going to ride in the Olympics. Like, you know, for so many kids that say that it's like, okay, like pat on the head. Good for you. Good luck. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How did that turn into it became obviously such a realistic goal for you and, and became part of the plan. How did you get from, I guess, point A to point B? What, um, you said that you were working for um, like under another barn and started to uh, kind of develop your professional career and you had your Olympic course as a foal. What kind of happened? What kind of like unravel or what, what was that uh, experience like at that point in your life? It was a really crazy turning point for me. So I was, I guess, 19 when I moved down here to Florida. And my top horse was, I think, six, if okay. I'm doing the math correctly, maybe about to turn seven. Um, and he had not been easy. So just that road of getting him started and surviving <laughs> was was rocky. And what made him difficult? He was He was always an excellent riding horse. So... He, from the time we put a saddle on him, once I was on his back, he just, he turned, he stopped, he went, he was intelligent in that way, but he would randomly, he was such a fearful horse mm -hmm. and he was such a big horse that his, there's no fight in him. So to this day, there's no fight in him that when he's scared, he just leaves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that was kind of his MO and it was never you could never anticipate when that moment was going to happen. So that became really difficult, you know, to have such a big young horse who yeah. was scared of different things every day. Um, Did you find there was more of that fear at home or uh, when you were competing? We couldn't, he had never didn't been get to, to that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hadn't had him. So when I, when we moved to Florida, I don't think I had ever been to a competition with him yeah. and he was so wise beyond his years in some ways, like by myself as a 17, 18 year old kid, I would load up my trailer, just him and I wow. and take him to the neighbor's house, you know, 10, 10 minutes down the street and use their indoor arena in the winter. Hmm. And it was like, that was all fine. But some days, like I would go to put the saddle pad on and he would catch it funny out of his eye and he would just split. Wow. So it was really kind of, that's what I mean. It was so random. You just couldn't plan what was going to set him off. That's so crazy. Cause like for a lot of horses, the whole idea of trailering down the road, like that would cause so much stress and no, it was like something it, as random as putting a saddle pad on. Yeah. Or we just got to be very, very careful mm -hmm. around him. And it was never because he was mean, but we just yeah. did everything very slowly and I would discuss it with him. It was never, this is what we're going to do today. Mm -hmm. You always kind of had to look at him in, in his eyes and say, are you okay with this? 
And if he said yes, it was the easiest, best day you ever had. And I learned if he said no, then we didn't do it that day. And that was fine. He was a generous horse. It was just a, a fear, a, a panic button for him. And so I did. I decided to make the move down to Florida. And that was, um, I guess, a period of my life where I probably learned I had one of the most intense learning periods in my life, both positive and negative, and taught me a lot about who I am. And it's tough as a young professional, you know, because there's so many older professionals and the ones who aren't maybe very secure with themselves or their business have a very easy time kind of talking those of us coming up through the ranks that we're not good, that we will never be good enough that, you know, you don't have the money, you don't have the talent, you don't have, you know, the horse. And it makes you question all of your life choices. And it makes you really have to get confident in who you are. Because if you believed everybody around you, you would have given up on this dream you had. And so I think in addition to working some really long hours, as we, we still do, but in a, in a very different way, I think I learned to trust my instincts and believe in myself. I mean, when people tell you, you know, that they don't want to help you or that you should sell your horse or whatever it is, you know, someone who's maybe been in this industry longer than you have to follow your own gut is not always the easy thing to do. And I mean, there was a time when I almost just left it all and went back to Vermont and said, I'll, I'll do something else, you know, something where I feel good about myself at the end of every day, because we all know that's not horses every day. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I was, so I was a working student working, you know, 10, 11 hour days. And then I would finish up at the barn and I would go bartend at night so that I had some extra income so that I could then afford to take my horse to some shows. And I did that for years. I mean, that went on for probably three years. Wow. And it was at that point where I also met my fiance, Kurt. And he was very, very confused at this lifestyle I was living. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean you pay to work there? I was like, you don't understand. This is a great opportunity. This is how it is in this business. And he's like, that doesn't seem right. You're working this second job so you can afford your first job. And I, it made me take a step back. And so I approached my boss and, you know, really puffed my chest up. And I thought, um, I'm going to ask to be paid. And it was this incredibly intimidating moment to walk into my boss's office and ask that I get paid. I think I asked for $20 a horse that I was riding for them. She looked me square in the eye, laughed at me, <gasps> laughed at me. And it was in that moment that I said, well, you know what? I have people who are willing to pay me $20 a horse. <laughs> and I left. Wow. Started my own, I guess you could call it a business. Again, I'm not sure that I made money for the first five years of that business. Sure. But that was a real turning point for me. It was kind of putting my foot down and saying, you know, this is what I'm worth. And I was very, very fortunate that I had a small number of people who did believe in me and even when I started my own business, I still held a second job to support that business, but it was wow. growing and it was mine. Right. And that was something that at least I could see building and turning into something that I was able to profit from at some point. 
Mm-hmm. And using all of this to now start taking some lessons with some other trainers and that sort of thing, which then, of course, catapulted me into some national championships and um, riding ultimately for the team. Yeah. So at that point, when you decided to branch off and do your own thing, what level were you competing at? I had only shown through pre St. George Intermediate One. Okay. And that was the highest that I had ever shown before in my life. I had before this top horse, I had a little quarter horse who I also did all the training on. And he did a little bit, you know, the one time tempi changes. And he did a little bit, maybe the passage that I had played around, not knowing what I'm doing. Still on this horse, my top horse, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was playing with it all. And when I left that position as a working student and went out on my own, I did then start him uh, in the intermediate two level. And within a year, I had started him in his first Grand Prix. What was the turning point to when you went back to your teen dream of being in the Olympics? What were kind of the specific steps you were putting in place to get on that track? I guess my dream never really deviated. There were these roadblocks, you know, and it was sometimes it takes you a while to realize that the thing in front of you isn't helping you. You know, it's not there to push you along, but rather it's the thing holding you back. And when you see it from the other side, it's really clear that it was holding you back. But in that moment, it's a scary thing to swerve around it to get back on your path. And yeah, so I mean, I think breaking away from from some people who were holding me back and and then making sure that I sought out whatever the best help was and as much of it as I could afford. And that's that's what I did. I applied for any grant I could get. I would ask for donations. Um, however, I could get them from whoever wanted to give me money, whatever I had to do. And yeah, I would volunteer where I could again, just to kind of network and meet people. And I would volunteer at shows. You know, if I just had one, this one horse, I would go, I would sit, I would steward, I would scribe and, and just try to be as much a part of the sport as I could. And I mean, I always had my eye on what I wanted to do. It's just that the road ended up looking differently mm-hmm. than I had pictured it in my mind. And I think getting really comfortable, like leaning into the resistance. And it was, it just became a part of everyday life is that mm. you're going to hit these things that want to slow you down. And the longer you let them, you know, the, the further away you are from your dream. Right. And so when you get comfortable, just kind of like, taking a swing and knocking it out of your way, you get to the next place much faster. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So tell me a little bit about your horses that you find. I mean, obviously every horse you owned, I'm sure has had a really special part of your journey. Tell me about a few of your kind of game changing horses that you've had the pleasure of working with. The very first one was one of those um, free ponies. Mm-hmm. And his name was Rafter. And he was jet black. And he was so beautiful. And he was so naughty. And that was my first experience with probably facing that resistance we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I would spend all this time getting him ready for these little 4-H shows. Mm-hmm. And we would practice and practice and practice. And we would get to the show and he would 
literally dragged me around the showground. <laughs> and we sometimes didn't even get in the ring. I wasn't even writing at this point. I was just doing in hand presentation classes. It was mortifying. And after that, I guess I had, um, these were, were free horses, mind you. Then I had this, this, I guess he was a quarter horse named Thunderpatch. Thunderpatch. Yeah. <laughs> Thunder he was this flea bitten gray horse who was probably 15 one and likely a size 81 blanket. Like he oh. was the longest horse from his nose to his tail that I've oh, ever gosh. met in my life. And he was completely neurotic when he came. He was another one of those rescues. I think it took, it took my mom, I, I think the first time they went to pick him up, maybe six to eight hours and they still didn't get him in the trailer. They wow. ended up going back with sedation. Mm -hmm. And I think in four hours got him in the trailer. And he was Unreal. just a real really nervous. I don't think anyone really knew what, what he had been through. Um, but once he settled in, he was just the kindest, most gentle horse who took me as my first riding horse to all of these 4-H shows, you know, where you mm -hmm. enter, I don't know, 12 classes a day and the horse spends the day tied to the side of the trailer mm -hmm. and, um, costume classes. I mean, yeah letting us dress him up in whatever we could think of. Wow. And um, he was very, very kind. And that was, um, I think, probably the first horse who really gave me confidence. Um, and the next one after that, I who I still have here on the farm in Florida, um, his name's Sonny. He's another quarter horse. And um, he was my first really athletic horse you know, and at the time I actually wanted to do eventing. And so he jumped and we did a bit of that and it turned out he and I probably had more talent for the dressage. And so we ended up kind of focusing just on that after a few years. And, um, yeah, he was the one who let me, me play around with all these things that I had never done. Um, I think the trainer I was working with mostly at the time, hadn't ever trained a horse to do those things either. I mean, it was mm. a little bit the blind leading the blind. Yeah. And he just, again, he just led us. And so these, these horses who were so trainable that they let us learn from them, I think are the ones who really, who set me up, um, that when my top horse came along and he was so difficult, uh, we had, uh, a real arsenal mm. of tools but still nothing that quite properly equipped us to handle him. Mm -hmm. And and I do, I credit my, my top horse who's now retired this year with, with who I am as a trainer. You know, he just taught me that every horse is so different and, you know, you can believe in whatever type of training system you believe in. But at the end of the day, you have to train that horse the way they need to be trained. And um, what works for one of them isn't going to work for any of the others. And I think that's the most interesting part of what I do every day. And yeah, I think he really, he totally shaped a lot of who I am as a trainer, but I think a lot of who I am as a person also. Um, and, and that's a very, a very special bond with that horse. Mm -hmm. Totally. If you have yet to hear about today's sponsor, I am so excited to introduce you. 
RiderZone is an online marketplace offering the best riding gear and accessories and backed by brand ambassadors like McLean Ward, Georgina Bloomberg, and our very own Laura Graves. The Equestrian Aid Foundation and Sam Shield America through RiderZone are joining efforts to support the equestrian industry during this difficult time. Sam Shield America will donate 20% of its sales each week to the Equestrian Aid Foundation Disaster Relief Fund to assist in their continued aid for our sport. You can participate and support this great cause by using the promo code EAFCOVID19. That's EAFCOVID19 on riderzone.com. That's R I D E R. Zon.com. Thanks so much, Rider Zone. Let's get back to the episode. Tell me a little bit about how you uh, how you got Diddy and what that process was like as far mm-hmm. as um, your uh, like training relationship with him. Uh, did you get him as a young horse? Yeah. So we um, back in the good old days of VHS tapes, um, <laughs> we. Uh, my parents had what is considered a small budget, but for us, it was not. Um, and so we were kind of looking at if I got something a little older with a little bit more training, but we knew wasn't great great quality or did we just risk it and get a baby? Um, and in the end, that was our decision. Um, I was young enough. We had the time to wait. We had, uh, the property and you know, a crew of other horses he could hang out with. Um, and so we bought him off a, a VHS tape from Europe as a six month old full. Wow. Wow. And so something I do not recommend for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out for you pretty well, but I mean, what would, what were you even, I mean, what was the video? What did you even really get to see at, you know, something that was that young? Yeah. I mean, it was a video of him in this paddock, just trotting next to his mom, being completely terrified of the camera with his tail straight up in the air. And (laughs) I I look back at it and I still laugh because, um, he looks exactly the same today when he runs around in his paddock, that tail goes straight up and he just, he has not changed at all. Um, and it was, I still look back at that video and I can say that I would buy that horse again. Um, mm. But to be perfectly honest, he wasn't, I was a young teenager. And at that point he wasn't my first choice um, on that tape. I had picked another foal and that foal had sold already. Mm. And so Verdades was my mom's first pick. Okay. And so when we found out that mine was sold, I was like, all right, let's just get your first pick. And it was really kind of that casual, like it was that big of a gamble for us, mm-hmm. um, that we knew it was incredibly risky, but we also knew that he was gay with four white socks and the odds of, if he didn't work out, the odds of selling him were probably pretty decent because he was going to be handsome. Um, and yeah, we imported him as a full also, as soon as he was weaned from his mom. Um, and he spent the first six months over here in the States being very, very sick, living at the vet clinic. Mm. Um, he didn't handle the trip well at all. Um, and he had barely been handled by people. And so his first now six months after this traumatic 
travel experience or living in a hospital being, you know, injected with penicillin. And it was, it was a, a, a sad, sad time for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately we just kept working with him and it was his, how powerful that horse was, was, I mean, it would just mesmerize you. Like it was exciting and terrifying at the same time. And still to this day, actually Saturday, I was riding him around the property and I had to bail off of him because he got so excited that what you feel happening Mm -hmm. is terrifying. And it's like one little, if he decides to buck, like that's it, you're done. Yeah. So I hand walked him back to the barn. Uh Um, and he's just, he's just been that way since the day he was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so you started, you started working with him. Obviously he had a rough beginning here with, with transitioning and the, and the trip over. He, I mean, he was still super young. So you gave him, I'm sure plenty of time to kind of grow up and grow into his own. Once you started working with him, what kind of horse was he as far as uh, trainability and, and getting him ready for his career? Um, like I, I talked about a little bit, he was very difficult in the simple ways Mm -hmm. and very simple in the difficult ways. (laughs) (laughs) So we, you couldn't fly spray him until I think he was eight years old. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm not even joking. Like you've seen horses be nervous about it. This was out of the question gone. Yeah. Um, you couldn't, uh, take a pair of clippers to him. I think when he was 11 years old, I finally was able to clip him without sedation. Wow. I mean, and he was, it was, he was terrified. You could Mm. watch him. We would have the vets come, you know, however, I was a kid a couple times, um, a year. So before competitions and things, so I could get, you know, the feathers on his legs that were this long, all shaved off. And, um, he would be completely tranquilized and shaking, Oh, shaking. I mean, his fear was so real. He's the most honest horse I've ever met. And, um, it was in those ways, very, very difficult to be patient with him, Mm -hmm. you know, being so young myself, but when you rode him, it was like, he just learned it all easily. If you wanted to go to the right, you just thought about going to the right and he went, hmm. if you wanted to go faster. You thought about it and he went faster. Wow. Um, he was always so soft on the hand. Um, always eager to work. Um, we didn't have an arena growing up. So I rode him on, uh, the dirt roads a lot. And it's a very quiet, it's a dead end dirt road. So it's not like you run into a lot of traffic yeah. and, um, yeah, I would just get on. And I mean, I think back now, like, what were my parents thinking? Just, <laughs> sure, you know, bye. Yeah. <laughs> no, no cell phones. Nothing right. like that. And I would just jump on mm-hmm. and we would go down the road until he got too nervous. And then we turn around because I never want my horses to learn to like spin and run back. Right. So then we turn around, we'd walk home and they get to a point, pretty much all of the horses that I've ever trained where they say, wait, I, I don't want to go back to the barn yet. Can't, can't we go back out? 
And that's kind of the mentality I like them to have. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really how I broke him. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and at what point were you riding him and putting him through training that you were like, okay, this might, this might actually work. He was young. He was probably, um, five or six when he was four, three and four was a difficult time because he was still so rowdy and he had bucked me off a few times and he was so difficult in life bathing him, fly spray, getting in the trailer. It really didn't matter like those moments of how good he was under the saddle because the rest of my life with him <laughs> made you yeah. just want to pull, pull your hair out. Um, and as a teenager myself, it was very, very frustrating. And so, um, yeah, it, um, the, the, the riding though was, was easy. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think when he was, yeah, probably five or six, I kind of said, I mean, what I'm feeling, this has got to be, I didn't know anything. And I thought already, I thought this has got to be better than any other horse feels. I just, I had, it's like goosebumps and butterflies. Yeah. And I was totally naive and looking back, I was totally right. Yeah. And, um, we started kind of applying for these working student positions. And at the time, uh, people really didn't, hadn't seen a horse like him. The style of horse for dressage was just starting to change. Um, and they were just starting to come out with these more modern types where the, there's so much articulation with the knees and the joints and people didn't know what to do with him. Um, and kind of looked at us cross-eyed for a while. Um, and, I just knew I kept looking around and I thought he's not just different. He's better. Mm -hmm. And it just Mm -hmm. took a while for people to appreciate him. I think. Yeah, definitely. And so obviously you went on to do the world cup finals, WEG, um, the Olympics. I mean, what was that process like, um, having him along, prepping him for competition. What kind of horse was he at those really big competitions? I think because our younger years together were so rocky um, that by the time those big events um, were happening, he just, he said, okay. Anytime I ever asked a question of him, mm-hmm. he trusted me so deeply that he he didn't even bat an eye. Um, and for a horse who's so fearful, I mean, walking into those stadiums, I remember yeah. my first world championships, um, in France and I was freaking out, not because of the pressure of riding, but we had to go through this tunnel. It was a, a soccer stadium and we had to go leave the warmups and go through this tunnel and out into this stadium. And I looked around and I thought, there's a good chance I'm not going to make it in here. And I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking this. Right. And we had a couple days to practice and he never even thought, never even thought about slowing down, never even thought about turning around. I just point him and he would go. Wow. Um, And he was like that every single day of his career. Hmm. That's incredible. I mean, that, I mean, it seems like, 
it was just such a perfect match. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you agree. It seemed to truly help that you guys have been through everything together and that you started him so young and that everything, any quirk or anything he did, you kind of saw it from the beginning and were able to kind of work through that and really know each other. Um, what did a morning of an event look like for you as far as his routine and his schedule and, and warm up? Um, the morning of a big event, um, of course he's used to, um, being in turnout mm -hmm. uh, for quite a, a significant portion of the day. So whenever we were traveling, it was a major point of mine to get him out of his stall as much as possible. Um, and it was also learning to teach the horses to, to relax also. So they're well rested, um, which can be a little, a little tricky when you're dealing with jet lag. Um, but as people, you know, we can force ourselves to go take a nap right. and the horses, you kind of have to get them into these routines. And so for me, the biggest thing when we were traveling morning of a competition is to have that routine. So the horses know what to expect. When can I rest? When am I going to be walked? When am I going to eat all of these things? Um, and to be perfectly honest, um, most competition mornings, um, you don't get to make your own schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, they'll, they'll give you the training schedule, the, the venue will as to when the arenas are open. Um, and usually it got to be very normal that these horses go twice a day. So we'd get them out in the morning when the training schedule would allow. And we'd work with the team coaches and probably have a good workout in the morning and then take them out a second time. And if that were a competition day, um, your warm up for the actual competition would be quite short because you'd already exercised them in the morning. Right. Okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously in this last year, um, he has retired. What brought on the retirement and what, uh, I mean, what was that process like for you? Yeah. Um, just so you know, my battery's running a little bit low. Okay. We should, we should be okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So we decided to retire him this year. Um, and now with everything that's gone on, I, I was questioning it to be honest. Mm -hmm. And after the whole outbreak of this virus, I just said, I am so thankful that I made this choice Yeah, because if I had tried to run him in some world cup qualifiers or something just to have everything canceled, exactly, I never would have forgiven myself. Right. And so it was for me, a bit of a, a silver lining, a good message that came from all of this. Right. Um, but he, um, you know, we, we have these home visits with our dressage, our U.S. dressage team coaches and directors and vets and all these things. And it just got to a point where I felt he, he wasn't looking like himself. Um, every year he came back. I always felt better than the year before, better right. than the year before. And he was 17 and I thought he looks better than he did when he was 16. Yeah. And he was so unbelievable that this year when he turned 18, I thought he looks 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you also have to compare the company you're about to be in. Right. So do I still think that I had the best horse in this country? I do. But I went into every world cup, every world championship thinking I have the best horse in the world mm -hmm. and looking around at what other top riders have, um, what Isabel has, what Catherine Dufour has, what Charlotte Dujardin has. And I looked at, I said, I'm not, I'm not feeling that sure anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't want to show him and have everyone else think the same thing. So that's just uh, selfish. And yeah. Um, yeah, so we made the the decision to retire him. And like I said, he's still on the schedule four days a week or so. And um, yeah, feeling feeling actually really super. So yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it must have been a really tough decision because obviously he's such an incredible animal, but the fact that you were able to kind of like catch on with the cues and, and realize there's no point in pushing something that, you know, especially by, it's a good point looking around and seeing, you know, what is around you. Um, and he's already done so much for you. So I think that that, yeah, it must've been a really tough decision. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was actually a very easy decision to make. Um, but of course, because it's very public decision, right. It was hard. I think if I didn't have that part of it, if it were just a private thing, I mean, my daily life here with him on the farm hasn't changed that much. Yeah. So the fact that we have so many memories that we're sharing with so many people is what have made it really emotional. Mm-hmm, definitely. So what does, once things get up and running again, what does the rest of the year look like for you? Well, I think I do have, um, I'm very lucky. I have some extremely talented young horses in my barn. Um, and so getting them off the farm, um, there's no pressure to compete this year, but making sure they all kind of have some some little adventures that they get comfortable traveling. Yeah. And, um, so they're ready to go for 2021. And again, they're very young. There's no pressure Four, five, six year olds. And, um, yeah, but I do, I do really feel like I have, I think I have two more 80% horses, um, which is a really exciting feeling for me. Totally. That's amazing. you know, looking back with, um, Diddy, I was so naive and in a lot of ways it was a good thing. And so I'm just trying not to be greedy with these ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That is very exciting things to look forward to. Um, what would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about, or doesn't talk a lot about that you'd like to shed some light on? You know, I think one of the most shocking things for me um, as a top dressage rider was um, seeing how many of our top riders in all disciplines are very hands-off with their horses. Um, And that is something I feel very, very strongly about, is that as riders, we also stay horsemen. Um, and I think in this industry, because it tends to be a lot about numbers and, you know, everyone having these separate jobs and the grooms and the the riders and the trainers and, um, that I think the horses sometimes don't always get that. Sometimes they get the short end of the stick, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and for me, there's just no place for that in this sport. Um, and watching these horses get passed around from different people to different people. Um, and I, I really think sometimes that their best interests do get pushed aside um, for the sake of business, whether that be for a sale or for a competition for a ribbon 
or for a big, big prize money paycheck. Um, and there's nothing more that I love to see than even if it's not at a world championship, even if it's just at a small local show is that the riders, um, take part in, in the care of the horse and that they do know everything about their horse. And sure, you might make less money, but I think if you're not taking part in that piece of this sport, you have no business riding that horse. And, um, yeah, it is really a place where I either have a lot of respect for someone or no respect for someone mm-hmm. as, as to how hands-on they are with their own horses. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's something that I think we often forget how relational horses are and how they really do uh, look to us for instruction where we kind of become their pack leader. And um, if they don't really know who their person is and who to go to because of kind of the absence in their life. Um, I think, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really good investment to spend time with your horse because I think the horses that perform the best really have that trust and faith and a good relationship with their rider. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it, um, it's very, very obvious to me when I see horses and riders competing, I can, I can tell by the look on the horse's face, you know, when the rider asks something of them that they want to for their person. Totally. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It was so exciting to have you and I wish you all the best. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.